looking very Joel Madden today, Matt. I'm not going to lie. You got a little bit of a beard going on. You got the upturned cycling cap, you know. It's not, well, number one, get fucked. Number two, not a cycling cap. It's a like, kind of weird old railwayman's hat. Oh, okay. Um, uh, number three. Um, you, al- you also have it like turned slightly sideways in a very pop punk kind of way. Yeah. Girls don't like boys. Girls like cars and money. I mean, you know. who doesn't who doesn't love cars and money? It's a good point. <laughs> money, money can be exchanged for goods and services. Tough, exactly, exactly. You know, you're supporting the economy. You're growing local jobs. You're supporting the privatization of the railway networks. The privatization of education. You know, I'm gonna get. Could, yeah, I'm gonna get. Um, I'm gonna get. What's he got on his? What he's? What's he got on his knuckles? Self-made. One of the Maddens has got that on his fingers, hasn't he? Of course, of course, he does. Like. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the mid-2000s were a, f- a fantastic time for music. Well, someone I think about often, right? So I used to, I used to go to uh, this, like, rock metal pop-punk night at a club in Rayleigh near Southend, which is called the Pink Toothbrush. I think it's still there. Um, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, I don't know if they still do, still do rock and metal nights, but when I was uh, in my early 20s, sort of in the summer holidays out of uni, or, like, late teens, I guess, even, we used to go down to the Pink Toothbrush. It was a bit of a mission, but it was you know, a good kind of night out from here. Mm-hmm. And um, I often think about this. There was a, a woman or a, I guess a young young girl, young woman who worked behind the bar and who had a full sleeve, like black and grey portrait, mm. Good Charlotte sleeve, like portraits of the Maddens, the Good Charlotte logo. I often think about her. I often think about what she's doing now, <laughs> whether she's still got, whether she's still got those tattoos. I mean, good on her. At some stage, you know, we're going to blow up to the point where someone's going to get tattoos of me and you. Tom, uh, you joke about that, but someone... I, haven't, I don't think I've ever told anyone this story. Someone did once message me on Facebook and uh, and ask permission to get a, a portrait tattoo of me. I don't know... I don't know how serious he was. It was a bit creepy and weird. He had portraits of other people, like sort of legit celebrities, and I was like... Mm, might be a bit weird if you did that. Probably don't. Um, I don't know if he ever did. I think I blocked him straight away. I mean, like, look, when we reach the 100 uh, patron mark, when I have to get this tattoo, I'm just going to get a tattoo of your face. On your face. On my face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, for, for anyone who's interested about that, um, since we haven't, like, talked about it in a while, when we reach 100 patrons, I am going to get a tattoo as chosen by the patron. I'm going to be presenting a selection of tattoos on the Patreon chosen by Matt, my lovely partner, Sinead, and one by myself, and one by a mystery guest. And I'm going to get a tattoo, whichever one is voted highest. Cool. And I did a... Um, are we, we'll do, we'll do a are we, we going to do a Patreon uh, supporters read at the end of this episode as well, Thomas? Because we, yep. Yep. we're doing that now. I did, did one for the first one uh, last week. And so... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you everyone for supporting the show. I know, I know. But <laughs> given the day that it is in it, and it is Lafayette Podrick, I just want to say, fall to the beneath the skin on Clor on Clorfui stair on Umlan Derha tree stair on tattoo. It's Mister Thomas Mahuna, August Thomas de a Kovlodjur Doctor Matt Lauder. Thank you. Is um is is Irish for tattoo tattoo? I would guess so. I, yeah. I, I will I will find it out now because there is a fantastic site called What's the Irish For? Um, 
I no, it's a folklore. It's ta- it's tattoo. So T A T U fodder. Right. Um. So I lo- yeah. I, um. Uh, a few a few years ago, uh, a friend of friend of mine was um. She had to. She had. She never passed GCSE maths, and she had to do GCSE maths in her like thirties to for the, some job she had. And so we. I. I'm not very good at maths, but I was just helping. We were helping her out with a little, you know, just sort of mucking around. We were working on the BBC website for uh, with BBC Bite Size with like the GCSE revision things. And I was like, I'm a pretty smart guy. I've got. A G, I've got a PhD. Um, I'm also massively overconfident and arrogant. I wonder how well I do on like practice GCSE questions without any, just doing them, you know, just, just doing the kind of GCSE revision quizzes that were online. Um, and I did pretty well on like pretty much every subject, like at GCSE level, certainly, uh, certainly in the humanities at least. Um, and then I was like, okay, I, I, I did a degree in languages. I can speak, or at least used to be able to speak pretty well French and German. And I, you know, I know bits and pieces of other languages. How would I do it? You know, GCSE French and German, the things I did degrees in. Could I do GCSE Spanish and Italian? And again, I sort of didn't do great on those things, but I did all right. I probably could like scrape a pass just about maybe. And I got really cocky and I was like, oh, what's the what's gonna be the hardest GCSE for me to do within my skill set? And I tried to do the, the GCSE in Irish and uh absolutely could not get anywhere near it like yeah. absolutely what Matt, an amazing language what Matt, amazing yeah, i don't know I don't... it's because it's a different language it's no i know no i know i know but i but i have been but i know bits and pieces of other language families and i um you know i was i i didn't i don't think i quite instinctively realized how etymologically and linguistically distinct irish was from from English and other European languages, it was, it was amazing. Anyway, this was this is me being arrogant and ridiculous, but I, it's a great, a beautiful and amazing language, and I would love to know more about it. This is a uh, this feels vaguely hibernophobic. I'm not going to lie. Irish can't be that hard. Irish can't be that hard. The savages across the water speak it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it God, was, I ha- it God, was, I hate your people. It was well, you rightly so, rightly so. What the Dutch. Yes, yes, the Dutch. But on another note, uh, which I was talking to you about earlier, since we're doing some intro pablum, uh, like we always do, I bought new shoes. I don't own a pair of formal shoes, um, so I bought you, so I bought a pair of loafers. I bought some Basswegians, which I will show you. Classic. So uh, this is obviously a audio format, so there is no visual. But I got some lovely Fred Perry collab. Baswegians. Very nice, very classic. And now you're gonna to have to get into shoe care. We have to start yeah. we have to start a shoe care podcast. They're great. Yeah, like a nice chunky sole, because I don't really like loafers because I don't like the flat sole. But a nice little detail on the inside is a little bit of tartan on the inside. Ah, I just got my loafers back. Uh I have a pair of uh Aldens that um I got resold and rebuilt by Dr. Soul in Taiwan. Um I'm I'm that dickhead. I send my shoes off to Taiwan to get remade. Um, so yeah, we can be loafer buddies. Yeah, we we can we can we can both wear our loafers. I um yeah. But with that out of the way, I think we need to do, talk about the task at hand, which is the fourth part and final part of our history of Japan. Yeah, it, it, sort, of, it sort of ended up being, what, the seventh part, I think, if you count the other episodes. Yeah, like, I, I, we might have something coming out next week, I don't really know, but, like, 
we'll figure it out. But uh, yeah, the, we're we're now at the end of our free of the free part of our history of Japan, and I think it's very fitting to talk about some lovely penny loafers because we're going to talk about some very well dressed men in this part of Japanese history as we are moving into the contemporary period. We're moving into the 1940s and onwards, and we're talking about modernity. But when we last left you off, we were talking about the evolution of tattooing in Japan into the 1920s. As, you know, there is legal precedence, Japan is changing massively as a culture, and we're going into the World War II period, which I don't think we can really talk about the history of Japan during World War II without talking about the rise of Imperial Japan and the kind of cultural cohesion project of Imperial Japan. So, Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, well, so that, that's exactly right. So, as always, there's a little bit of overlap with last week because we sort of figure out the hist- where we are in history. And I, um, I think uh, probably a good place to think about this or to or to talk about this is to is to do to initially talk in a bit more detail about the yakuza because like we didn't we've mentioned them kind of obliquely on a few episodes and we haven't really talked in detail about um like who the yakuza are and how they connect both um historically and kind of fantastically you know in the kind of cultural imaginary um the the the, the modern uh, uh, japan with with japan of of, of historical uh, of, of historical record, it's because you know, as we as we talked about, and if you if you are a patron patron, um, you will have heard our interview with Benoit Robitaille, where we talked quite a lot about uh, images of tattooing in ukiyo-e prints. If you're not a patron, you should become one and subscribe and listen to that episode. We talk in that episode for people who haven't heard it about how you know in. Um, Pre-Meiji Japan, tattooing is this practice that's that's undertaken, you know, not just by criminals, um, but which has a particular kind of relationship with a kind of underclass, a kind of masculine underclass. And that's really again where these breadcrumbs of tattooing for um for the yakuza come from so i don't know how much do you know about like the history of the yakuza tom like do you know like where they come from um not a whole lot i know in terms of their business uh quote unquote they're kind of involved in everything so it's not just what you would think of as a traditional criminal organization involved in stuff like gambling smuggling extortion protection intimidation that sort of thing it seems like as we move into the more into the 20th century, the Yakuza kind of represent this kind of parallel business class and parallel social structure within Japan that they're they exist within their own laws, their own social hierarchy and their involvement with, you know, the lay people of Japan. Um as if I can remember correctly, um they were heavily involved in because gambling was quite prohibited in Japan, like gambling houses. Fun fact, Nintendo started as a card game manufacturing company, but as far as that goes, I've seen, like, you know, the same kind of documentaries that everyone has seen of, like, scary guys and flashy suits. And as a funny aside, um, I was in Dublin last weekend uh, with a friend of mine who lived in Japan, and he lived in Japan... um, I can't remember how many years ago, but he's like a really, really tall guy and he has tattoos and he was living in an apartment building 
with the you know shared bathing facilities and was told because he has tattoos is like no you can't bathe here you're not allowed and he was like well what am i supposed to do and the guy pointed across the street and said go bathe there do you know what that was that was a yakuza bathhouse (laughs) (laughs) so you can imagine this like six foot four american guy rocking up and they're like are you with they asked him are you with the government and he said no i just i just want to bathe but anyway as that aside yeah, so that actually that being with the government's also interesting, and we'll we'll come back to that uh, in a second because yeah, the yakuza are a uh, you know they they are a kind of mafia like organization. That's how they get how they get described as, but they also have very deep complex relationships with business, with civil society, and with politics. Like both, uh, particularly in this period actually that we're talking about, sort of the first half of the 20th century, right? Things sort of begin to change in the aftermath of the 20th century in a way that's important for tattooing as well, which we'll come to. So, um, you know, in in pre-Meiji Japan, there are these basically kind of, you know, I think um, uh, Benoit described them as kind of good bad guys, right? They're these kind of respectable criminals, right? Um, and, and the Yakuza essentially are spiritually at least... Um, if not exactly historically connected to these two kind of groups of, 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 of yeah, like ga- gangs, I suppose is the best way of putting it right back in pre-major Japan. So you've got these gangs called the Bakuto who are gamblers and the Tekia who are kind of street peddlers, like kind of, you know, street hustlers, people who are sell- buying and selling and, you know, black marketeering and all this kind of stuff. Um, the Takea basically have control over market fairs and portable booths at shrines and are particularly you know, famed in this period. And now we're talking sort of 18th century for counterfeiting, for, you know, kind of sharp business, basically. Um, they also then, out of that, develop a kind of protection racket kind of practice, which is really a, one of the things that the modern day Yakuza do, a, a particular Japanese form of kind of protection racketeering um and then you have these bakuto gangs which are initially like basically construction workers right they're 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 independent gangs of workers who are recruited by the government uh to to dig ditches to to do these kind of big stale big scale government projects right um this is basically where the yakuza properly begins so basically what happens is the government um, have to pay these workers loads of money, right? Because there's lots of work needs to be d- done. And then to get it back, they then encourage gambling amongst these guys to to basically win their money back. Um, this is described in a great article from the 90s uh, called uh, Yakuza, the Warlords of Japan. Uh, and yeah, so I'll read you this out. The first Bakuto gangs were recruited by Tokugawa government officials who were responsible for irrigation and construction projects. These construction efforts required large payments of money to the labourers, money that government officials schemed to get back by hiring Bakuto to gamble with the workers. Later on, the Bakuto organised into discipline groups and they were operating along the major highways of feudal Japan. The Bakuto gave the modern Yakuza its central tradition of gambling, finger-cutting, tattooing, and the first use of the word Yakuza. Right? So basically the government kind of send these like infiltrators into these gangs to like, you know, get them to gamble, to, 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 to 
you know, try and win this money back. So in right in the beginning there, you've got this interesting complication between crime, labor, and government officials. And the name Yakuza uh, comes from a the name of a kind of hand in a card game called Hanafuda. So Hanafuda is a card game. And again, I'll read from this article because it's easier than me um, summarizing it. The term Yakuza is derived from the worst possible hand in the card game Hanafuda, a hand consisting of the cards eight, ya, nine, ku, and three, za. The losing combination of Yakuza came to be used widely amongst the early Bakuto gangs to denote something worthless, and it was later applied to the gamblers themselves. For years, the word Yakuza was limited to the Bakuto gangs. Some Yakuza purists today insist that only the true Yakuza are the gamblers. But by the early 20th century, the word gradually became to be used by the public to apply to both Bakuto and Takeya. Takeya is these is the, the, the street peddler gangs, right? So then the 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 tattooing and the, and the finger cutting and stuff um, is basically linked with this idea of being outlaws, right? Kind of literally being outside of polite society. Um, it allows you know tattooing again, like allows you to signify in particular that you are, as we talked about in our other episodes, manly, brave, tough, um, kind of edgy. It has a kind of stylishness to it. Um, it has this, as we talked about in the previous episode as well, a link to particular kind of stigmatization histories of of um, criminality and of, and of otherness. But um, yeah, like... This is this is why tattooing and and yakuza become particularly kind of intertwined, right? And it's it's not, of course, though the case that only yakuza were tattooed. Now, um, around the turn of the twentieth century, so post Meiji, as we said, tattooing was banned. Um, but this group of people basically set up this group, this organization called the Edo Chokai, the Tattoo Association of Edo of Tokyo, which is like, you know, kind of modern tattoo convention, basically, this kind of group of tattooed people hanging out together. And they are quite clear, actually, that they don't want to be thought of as gangsters. <laughs> They're like, if we were criminals, it was only when we were younger. Um, most of us are not criminals. And actually, most Yakuza don't earn very much money. Only the, you know, getting a big horimono, a big bodysuit tattoo is really expensive. Um, and so it's actually kind of ridiculous. They they at least publicly like laugh at the idea that that tattooing and um and the Yakuza are are particularly linked. So they they've been kind of I mean we talked a bit about them again in the, the episode with with Benoit, but they've basically been kind of holding the the torch for this more traditional, more kind of noble side of the bodysuit tradition, right? And they've been going since 1902 really really big and important in the through the kind of 1930s and 40s um this is i guess you know sort of obvious right at a time so tattooing as we talked about was explicitly illegal um it's not un- made unillegal until the 1950s but at this so at this time it's this kind of secret but it's this proud historic thing um really uh, the the the, the edochokai still exists actually they do um, annual pilgrimages, um, heading out to um, heading out to, to shrines and heading out to important sites of um, of Shinto and, and Buddhist religious uh, practice. Really, really amazing group of people. And in fact, um, 
they're also very interlinked with um, the tattoo murder book that we also talked about in one of our in our other episode or interview with Pascal that hopefully you've also heard on the feed. Um, so that then brings me to the, the second thing I want to talk about before we really get to the post-war period, because these things come together in a really interesting way, is the work of a guy called um, Dr. Masaki, Masaki Fukushi. So again, we've alluded to him on a few other episodes, but he is working at the University of Tokyo. He's a dermatologist. And from about 1915, um, around about World War One, he begins essentially working with the Edo Chokai, with the Tokyo Tattoo Club, to collect the skins of members when they died. Um, Japan, had, Japan had allied with Britain um, during World War One. Um, they had a kind of mutual defence pact, basically. Japan, in the early part of the 20th century, was pretty, you know, pretty bolstered. It was pretty kind of feeling quite happy with itself after it defeated Russia in the 1904 Japan-Russian War, and um, that just in- then increased this push for a certain kind of European modernity, modelled on, you know, modelled on European imperial, you know. Uh, histories basically right um, as the, weirdly as the old empires of europe were collapsing um post-world war one the japanese were kind of going oh well that seems to be quite a good thing for us to model and there's a big kind of modernism movement in japan which is quite interested in finding a, a way for japan to you know kind of become a great power ape the european military uh trajectory but also find a way of of, of combining the Jap- japan's past with its present this also becomes in that also becomes important. But let's talk about Fukushi specifically. I mean, Fukushi is amazing and again a really important figure. Um, he he basically found this way that to preserve skin after death that would keep the colours of the tattoos pretty much as they were when the person was alive. And you know he he was also kind of interested in the fact that this old Japan was literally dying off. Right, these tattoos were not as common as they had been because they were illegal. And as these men um, were dying, and there was there were some women in the Tokyo Tattoo Club, but most of the skins that he collected were of men. As they were dying off, he wanted to make sure that this part of Japanese history was, was preserved, right? And it feels pretty gruesome. Um, but he he became really kind of... He, he I think, um, uh, more than many other people, actually, certainly in this period, made Japanese tattoo history visible to the world. He was profiled, and his son, who followed on from him, was profiled in Life magazine. Um, he came, I talk about this in the book, he came to uh, Chicago on a tour in 1928, and he brought with him some tattooed skin specimens and gave a talk at the um, uh, the, the Asian Art Collection at the Art Institute in Chicago. and. While he was there, this tattooer came up to him and said, "Hey, can I buy can I buy some one of those skins from you, please?" And the, he was like, "No, they're not for sale. No, of course they're my research. You can't buy them from me." Um, that night, that night, his hotel room was broken into, and his bag containing all of his skins was stolen, never to be seen again. So they probably still exist somewhere. I do hear rumors occasionally of like, you know, skins passing through the underground art market. So they may still exist somewhere. I love what I love about that particularly is that um, 
So he'd, he'd acquired several thousand specimens, um, most of whom were destroyed, sadly, in the bombings of Tokyo in the 1940s. Um, the, the day after the bag got stolen, the Chicago Tribune in their lost and found pages posted an advert saying, quote, return of Japanese tattooing articles, valuable manuscripts, lantern slides, and scientific photographs, no, no questions asked. <laughs> I right. mean, if you're going, if you're going to get them back, I think that's probably the best way to say it's like eh, no questions, just you know, um, leave them uh, at the doorstep. Funnily enough, um, I was I took a tour uh, of Dublin history uh, when I was there at the weekend. Uh, my friend didn't know anything about it, and there is a church in Dublin that has essentially like mummified bodies in the crypt that you can go and see, and one of them is of a crusader. Um, and it, it used to be that it was a tradition, you know, you'd go and like you could shake the crusader's hand and it would be good luck. And then a couple of years ago, someone went to shake the hand, and the hand came out and then they were like, OK, no, you, they managed to reattach it. And they were like, OK, don't shake the hand. You can like rub his finger. And then obviously the finger fell off. So the body was kind of like closed, like don't touch it. And then a couple of years ago, someone broke into the crypt and stole his head. Fuck. And it it was a case that there was like public outcry over because obviously like this is a historical art a fact that the city's quite proud of, um. And they put out a call. It's like, look, return it, just give it back to us. And a couple of days went by, about six days later, and the gardener at the church was like cutting the grass and noticed that the head was underneath a bush. Jesus with just Christ! A note that, with a note that said, "I'm sorry," um, and then. The guy got caught like soon after and when he was on trial for, you know, desecration of a body and stuff like that, he said, oh, I had taken like loads of drugs and like completely blacked out. And the, fir the first thing I remember when I like kind of came to was I was in the crypt beside the body because there's video footage of this guy Fuck. spending like half an hour trying to reef open the doors to the crypt. He gets in, he disappears for like an hour and a half. And when you see him coming out, he has the head under his arm. Oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god. Um, this is such an aside, but I guess this is what's this is what the podcast is for. Have you heard the story of Elmer McCurdy? So again, very short because it's not particularly tattoo related. But Elmer, Elmer McCurdy was a bank robber uh, who was shot in a like shootout in nineteen eleven in um, Oklahoma, and basically his mummified body was put on display um, almost as a kind of like you know. Or encourage those ultra kind of thing, right? Like this is the yeah, you know, this is a kind of bandit. Don't 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 end up like him. So he he was on display on like traveling sideshows and circuses for so many years, and like that <laughs> in the in the nineteen seventies, um, the six million dollar man was filming an episode at an amusement park in Long Beach, California, and we're like this old like this old this old like waxwork mummy. Is uh, in this horror show is a bit like a bit ridiculous. Can we just move that out the shot? And they went to move it and realized it was a real body, not actually a waxwork dummy. It had been <laughs> his body had been. I mean, it's kind of horrific. His body had been hanging there for like best part of sixty years, and people had just forgotten it was a real human being. Um, just horrible. <laughs> just really horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but but Fukushi, you know, Fukushi, Fukushi's so Fukushi's put his um, initial 
um, specimens on display at the Osaka Hygiene Expo in 1915. And they were obviously kind of very interesting to people um, for all, all kinds of reasons. The other amazing thing about Fukushi's specimens is you can, and, and there are people who have done this, um, you can find pictures of the members of the of the Edo Chok- Chokai online, uh, or, you know, in, alive in real life. And then you can look at pictures of uh, Fukushi's skin collection and you can compare them. You can see these guys alive and then, and then their tattoos um, preserved in this amazing way. Many of them are, yeah, many of them, many of them are these quite, you know, woodblock prints. Really interestingly, some of them are even, you can see that some of the members of the Edo Chokai were even actually looking at some of those woodblock prints of tattooed people and copying the tattoos so they looked like the figures in the prints. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As, and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saladerm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saladerm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saladerm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saladerm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saladerm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Saladerm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Saladerm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Saladerm products or for more information. And interesting, and same like we talked about with Pascal last week, is that the the preservation of the tattoos as you know like talked about in the book and in reality with fukushi as well as that like tattoo tattoos on skin being this living thing that conforms to the shape of the body of like not displaying the tattoos as just like flat rollouts of skin having them like displayed on kind of a uh, kind of a mannequin so you could actually see how the tattoo 
looked on the physical form when the person was alive certainly some of them yeah i mean there's one at the Na- in washington that was donated in the national museum of health in washington which is on a mannequin and but some of them some of them were sort of simply framed and flattened it's super interesting and you know fukushi's son um carried on the tradition ed hardy famously went there and photographed um some of these back in the 70s um in the uh, life and death tattoos edition of tattoo time um, but you know, it, uh, the, the point was right to preserve this history, to find a way of like preserving this history. And again, this is where we sort of come back to the Yakuza, right? So the Yakuza as a, as a, as a, um, group of people, as I said, are very interested culturally in this ancient Japan, right? A lot, a lot of it is nostalgic. A lot of it is nationalist. A lot of it is, is romantic. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, it's it's very sort of politically connected to this idea of a of an old Japan. Um, again, I want to read you this. This is from a, a book called Japan Story by Christopher Harding. Really, really good book, actually, if you want to read about the history of Japan. Um, so this talks about essentially, you know, Tokyo had like grown to over four million people by 1923, doubled in size, and so. This kind of nostalgia for what had been lost, this old Japan, was was really increasingly important in certain circles of uh, society. And actually, this link between government and violent gangs becomes quite important in this moment when there's lots of political tussling, when the social order is quite unstable. So I want to read you this. This is super interesting. So um, before they were great statesmen, Many of the early Meiji leaders had been violent men. The idea of righteous conflicts that launched the imperial restoration lived on afterwards in various uh, forms. Um, in particular, ultra-nationalist organizations like the Genyosha, the Dark Ocean Society, and the Kokuyukai, Black Dragon Society, and Soshi, political thugs for hire. So these aren't straightforwardly Yakuza, but this is kind of idea of political violence, right? The new Diet, the new Diet building in Tokyo, had been playing host to artfully dishevelled, swaggering young men with long hair and loud voices, carrying pistols, swords, and sword sticks. Some hung around outside, waiting for a particular politician to emerge, either a target or a patron in need of protection. Others wandered the corridors inside, intimidating politicians who, it was said, would often turn up to work in bandages. One politician had his soshi beat a rival with brass candlesticks in the middle of a public meeting for calling him a peasant. Soon the use of Soshi became so institutionalized that political parties actively and openly recruited them from Japan's criminal fraternity, gave them weapons training, and incorporated them into bureaucratized pressure groups that were straightforwardly divided into interdian intelligence groups and borrow Yokudan violent groups. So there's this idea essentially that, like, particularly on the right and particularly the nationalist right, uh, this kind of violent gang culture is quite useful. Right? It gets to, um, it, you know, it, it allows, it allows political power um, to be activated. And so again, when we're talking about like you know, attitudes towards the Yakuza and attitudes towards tattooing, I think you also have to remember that it's not, it's not that straightforward as, you know, as it might seem from, from the outside, the, the, the links are much more intricate. Um, yeah, I mean, the Yakuza themselves, they're very 
they're, they're as I said, they're, they're, they're less interested in tattooing now than they used to be because, um, you know, being obviously visibly tattooed or you know having your finger cut off, for example, is, was done to um, some Yakuza was was just was was if you wanted to avoid getting caught being visibly obviously a member of a gang was you know was not that allowed although it's not actually illegal to be a member of the yakuza um it's not it's not specifically illegal to be part of a gang or part of a yakuza gang um but yeah this 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 what tattooing allows you know the the role that tattooing plays in yakuza culture is a particular kind of relationship to tradition and um you know the old ways but in a way that isn't exactly nostalgic in the same way as you know um we might think of that term in 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 european thinking does that make sense mm. yeah yeah it, it, like i think it's it is focused on kind of like history and tradition but not in a kind of we need to return to that kind of way Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's more that this needs to persist. It's more mm. that this needs to this needs to this needs to kind of continue over into the um into the into the contemporary uh moment, right? Yeah, and it's interesting like thinking about, you know, the the continued rise of the yakuza into the like mid to late 20th century because like as evident throughout history when you have a volatile political and social situation and then suddenly you have a very quick succession of changes in terms of like politics social order culture it creates this void for people to fill and obviously when you're looking at post-war japan you're looking at a country that is like reforming itself from the bits that hadn't been you know bombed broken culture that was subsumed into japanese fascism that was left over and is this re-examining of well what does it mean to be japan as a country and Jap- japanese as a people and you have this kind of this thing that has existed longer than the state that has just fallen apart and existed as kind of like a parallel society so obviously it's going to make sense that in the absence of like a lot of things that a state would provide then these sort of groups would fill in those gaps Right, and we get you know there's a new emperor right comes to power in uh, 1926 the, in a period that gets known as the Showa period, and there's a big push at that time or a hope at that time that it's that Japan's going to return to this very old fashioned imperial, you know, um, at a time when suffrage is is and democratic change is beginning to come in. Um, there is a, this group that really want, and and that is really where the roots of Japanese fascism begin actually it is this ultra nationalist traditionalist move in the country which is associated and, and you know again directly and kind of romantically with histories of of violence and of of the romance of the of the kind of yakuza class yakuza gang class that is one of the driving forces of japanese fascism um so i want to talk we'll we'll come to what happens in the 50s of uh in a second, because it's also that's also linked in a way to to tattooing. So yeah, let's let's quickly mention some of the tattooers, right? Some of the people that are really important in this period. Um, we mentioned in a previous episode, you know, the the real sort of early pioneers uh, of or the sort of famous tattooers of people like Gonta. But this next generation uh, of artists, and this is um, again. As, as written in uh, by Van Gulik, whose book we've talked about a lot, we 
we end up with, and I'll quote here, um, Hori Uno, a famous line of tattoo masters, was inaugurated. Um, referring to the noted tattoo master Hori Uno, a newspaper article of 1947 states, quote, the Tokyo-born master tattooist helped e- elevate the body decoration to the artistic level. He did so by integrating into tattooing the arts of shading and perspective in painting and by fitting tattoo designs to the respective body shapes. The same newspaper article contains remarks made by the tattoo master Hori Uno too, alias Suzuki Ginjiro, who at that time was 72 years old and was still alive as a tattoo artist in the Kanada district of downtown Tokyo. Telling about his work, that tattoo master remarked, quote, I regard human bodies as a sort of canvas or material for sculpture, adding that good tattoos can be produced only by artisans with strong passion. According to Hori Uno too, Japanese tattoos are distinguished by bokashi, or shading off a pattern. Unlike the Western specimens, he explains, that consist mainly of line drawing, the Japanese tattoo is categorised by elaborate patterns by the use of multiple colours and shading techniques, almost resembling paintings with three-dimensional effects. And then um, uh, Bangulik cites pupils Horikuni, uh, Horikin, and Horiuno III. Uh, so uh, all of these, and uh, there are other people like Horibun, all of these artists are sort of present in uh, Fukushi's collection, so to speak. They're mentioned specifically in the Tattoo Murder book. Um, and it's really clear that even while tattooing is you know, illegal um, and while tattooing is kind of stigmatised through the 1930s, there's still this kind of interest in the artistic side of things. And this is, I think, this interesting balance between the Edo Chokai and, and the more modern, more reductive idea of the Yakuza being the only people who are tattooed because there is this real sense, even amongst the tattoo community of the period, of like of great art being lost, you know. Um, and I think I think that tension is also interesting. It's also kind of where we end up with. So okay, um, post-war. So Japan obviously um, is defeated uh, in the Second World War. The bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki are devastating. Both, you know, obviously practically they they wreak great swathes of devastation on the um, infrastructure and the urban landscapes of those two cities. Going to Nagasaki, the, the Atomic Bomb Museum in Nagasaki was like one of the most heart-wrenching things I've ever had to deal with. And Japan is, um, Japan is occupied by the United States. What that means is, interestingly, that really the Yakuza and the, and the criminal gangs um, are much less powerful um, in that post-war period, right? Because actually, their influence, their um, close connection to the levers of power is 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 kind of weakened. Um, you know, the yakuza is it's also worth mentioning, right? Are they're 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 in they're involved in things like drugs a bit. Um, most of their money comes from, as I said, protection racketeering. Human trafficking, sex, sex work, gambling, and also kind of sort of slight sort of quasi legal things like um, they they run a lot of the cleanup at, for example, the Fukushima nuclear site. Even you know post twenty eleven, um, they 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 through you know intimidation and networking and various things get to get to um, infiltrate themselves into japanese public civil society in kind of complicated ways and they're just not as useful right they're just not as they're just not as kind of necessary in the 1950s 
Um, and there's this, there's this real moment of kind of retreat, I suppose, or of, of, um, uh, of, of, of retreating from public utility for, for a while. The other thing that happens, right, is, and again, I mentioned this in the episode where I talk about tattoo law, is that tattooing is made illegal, made legal again, specifically, partly because of this modernizing constitution, partly because Americans in Japan <laughs> want to get tattooed. Ironically, all, all the we all the weebs are getting tattoos, so you know, got to make it all legal. The weebs are getting tattoos. You know, tattooing had been made illegal because back in the to remind people back in the 1860s, because the, the the then government thought that tattooing would make Japan look different. Um, of course, but that was what foreigners were really one of the things that foreigners were really interested in and and, it, and there's also this general post second world war idea that japan should strive towards a kind of more liberal constitutionalism um it does that ironically under the um under the rule under the rule of a convicted war criminal um who the japanese who the americans supported into power um yeah, which is yeah, a guy called Narobo Koyama, which is again an astonishing story in its in its own right, not directly tattoo related, but worth worth. There's a great um, behind the bastards episode if you don't listen to that podcast, you should about his story. But all that means is that post-war tattooing in Japan, um, it still has this social identity as being linked to the past, but by post-war, post. Um, in the kind of post-imperial, uh, post-World War II, post-fascist landscape, those links are even more kind of problematic, right? So even though it's legalized, there's even more sense that Japan needs to, if it wants to reinsert itself into the national order, it needs to once again sort of almost kind of re-go through what it went through in the 1860s, try and make itself look as quote-unquote normal, quite as acceptable, quite as part of the European project as possible, as quickly as possible. And it, it, we're sim simplifying a very long and complicated story there. But it, once again, I think because tattooing had been so associated with this particular kind of imperialist nationalism, um, that again makes social forces uncomfortable with it. Um, it's, not, it's not explicitly banned, but the social taboos about it really kicking in that period you know like tattooing had been taboo as we've said for a long time you know nearly a hundred years by the time by the time of the second world war um but the 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 real the real kind of nationalist um you know quite kind of you know openly violent implications of it were even more pointedly problematic on a cultural point of view although that said you know there were still amazing tattoo artists um working in post-war japan and you know horiyoshi the third um who begins tattooing in the 1970s i think is about when he's he's born in 19, 1940s post-war there's still this kind of interest in the past and all of that romance all of that joy the same reason that anyone i think many of us get obsessed with tattooing is we love the romance and the history of it and so even in these times when it's very taboo although as i said no longer illegal the, the, there's still these artists who are fighting to keep it alive and fighting to keep it alive in a way that really exists on the edge of criminality and and art, you know. Yeah, All those things that Benoit mentions when we interviewed him. This idea of the the good the good bad guy, you know. Yeah, kind of and it, it is that idea of like 
history that is fringe and or a little bit confusing and complicated will always be kind of kept alive at the fringe as well by those on the fringes of society so you see that idea of you know in the kind of i suppose you could call it the tattooing winter in japan it is those people who are on the outside of society keeping it alive yeah and this is this is where, where i think the edo chokai are really interesting really interesting and important right because they are like the bristol tattoo club uh like the tattoo club of america which are coming up you know in the um, much later than the Edo Chokai did, but doing the same thing. They're trying to, they, there are these people who just really love toes, you know, for whatever reason, artistically, sexually, culturally, um, historically. They just want to keep tattooing alive and they sort of say, hey, no, we love toes. We don't want to just be thought of as these criminals and and sailors. And 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 that's happening in Japan as well, right? And we, and we shouldn't, again, as, as um, I think the interview with, uh, Benoit really lays out in some some good detail. We shouldn't. It, it's it's very easy to kind of say tattooing in Japan is is just for yakuza, but actually the reason that yakuza love tattooing is the reason why people who aren't yakuza love <laughs> love tattooing as well. You know, I I was going to say I think that's a you know a lovely point to bring our current series to an end. That like as. This isn't going to be the last time we talk about Japan. I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about Japan loads in future. But I think in terms of like the bringing you up to speed about what tattooing means in Japan, and obviously I think we will have a conversation soon with someone what who is a bit more knowledgeable about what tattooing means right now and the kind of culture that's formed around it in the intervening period since you you know the 50s and 60s up to now. But I think. In terms of what we were aiming to do with this series, I think we've I think we've come to an end. Matt, how do you feel at the end of these four well, it's, parts? It's, it's funny, you know. I was on the picket line yesterday, um, and I happened to be support talking support the unions. To, the, I happened to be talking to a colleague of mine who's a historian of Russia, and we we end up randomly talking about the Russia-Japanese War, and um, then then another colleague of ours who's a literature scholar who worked on the literature of the Caribbean turned up and he was like, he's, I'm saying, Oh, what are you working on at the moment? He said, Oh, I'm working on a book about the use of the word colored, right. As a racial category in the United States. And he said, you know, obviously it's not just, it wasn't just applied to African-Americans, but it was certainly in the 1920s, particularly um, applied to anyone who wasn't white. And there was a real uptick with the kind of, what get called the yellow peril, right. The, the worrying that the, that Japanese people are this kind of big wave of prob- problematic immigration. Um, of course, that leads up to, you know, uh, and is part of the conversation about internment of Japanese, Japanese Americans. But like, it's really interesting how these stories about Japan's relationship to the world and how these changing categories of past, present, of, of where Japan fits into Japanese people fit into racial, like European racialized and racializing categories is something that, you know, affects all kinds of conversations. It affects all kinds of conversations about all kinds of things. And tattooing is this, again, this really interesting anchor point to talk about Japan's relationship with the world because it's something that Japan itself has, for centuries, kind of been quite, has a quite complicated relationship with and which the outside world has used to either in-group or out-group Japanese people into European racial categories. So I think, like, you know, we've, we've, we've sort of dotted around and we've, We've I'm pretty repeated myself a lot if anyone's listened to all of these episodes, but I think the point, hopefully the point stands that 
um, there is this particular quite limited idea that tattooing is this complete sort of subcultural thing and only associated with with gangsters whereas the truth is much more interesting and much more complicated and and the that the truth of that is partly because how what gangsters are is also quite complicated <laughs> in a Japanese yeah yeah context. yeah you know um the yaku- the yakuza don't really do theft they're they're not a kind of you know they're not they're not out robbing banks they're they're a really interesting as you said, sort of society within a society, they're a, they're an organisation which has really quite interesting and complicated relationships with with the, the mainstream of Japanese society. And tattooing is one way of talking about those complexities, I think. So yeah, so I hope I hope people have enjoyed this. I mean, as I said, as always, um, there's way way more to this than than we can cover in this medium. Um, I really recommend Van Gulik's book, looking up the work of Yoshimi Yamamoto. Looking up the work of um, Noboru Koyama, who we mentioned, a librarian at Cambridge. Um, Christopher Harding's Japan story. Um, there's a great book by Grace Lavery um, about Japanese history. And then um, I, I'm, I'm the name is completely escaping me at the moment. Um, but there is also uh, a couple of really, really great books. We can we'll, we'll tweet them out. Really amazing books on on Japanese history, which is worth getting your getting your head around. So, mm-hmm. yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah. I hope, have you learned something, Tom? I've I've learned I've learned so much. I I've, I've had so much fun actually making the series. You know, I it it's rare that because obviously like podcasts are my whole job. So like finding something that you know I can be a part of that like I'm actually like learning new stuff and like getting to have a conversation about you know history is not as simple as we'd like to think obviously that's the whole remit of this show but with that in mind i want to say thank you for everyone who's listened this far Um, we've got a lot gotten a lot of new listeners over the course of this season so hello for anyone who's been listening since before then hello again and also i want to thank our patrons as well if you want to support the show on patreon you can do so for as little as five pounds a month you get bonus episodes you get episodes like this early and if you subscribe at 10 pounds and above you get a lovely shout out which i'm about to do but if you subscribe at 15 pounds and above you'll also get a signed copy of matt's book that you matt will ship to you signed with a kiss but with yes, that in mind um <laughs> i want to say thank you to morpheus ravenna Sigrun Braga, Mav Mess, Matt Landis, Matt Daniels, Kirsten Wright, Kathleen Burkhard, Gary O'Sullivan, Charlie Lightning, Adrian Lau, and our super secret patron as well. Um, thank you to everyone who supports the show as well. Um, you know, you can follow us online. You know all the stuff. All down in the description. We'll do a tweet thread about all of the great books that we've talked about during this season or this series. And yeah, from me, Talmud, thank you very much, Matt. Thank you very much for me. If I should also mention, if you want to um, uh, come and see me speak, I will be speaking um, in April in a couple of places. I'm going to be speaking um, at the Bishopsgate Institute in London uh, on the uh, 13th of April. I'm going to be speaking uh, up in Newcastle at Cocker Snook Tattoo towards the end of April. 
I'm speaking at the last Tuesday Society in London as well. Um, so keep an eye on my Instagram or the, the, the show's Instagram for those dates and, and, and how to get tickets for all of those things. And uh, hopefully, yeah, see some of you in person. Yeah, and if you don't forget, if you want to see all of the visual delights that I see every time we record, follow Matt's FitPics account, Much Otter. Thank you very much for me. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.